1: Greetings and welcome to a Friday edition of the Shotgun Start. It is October 15th. Andy, how we doing?
0: Brendan, I'm doing great. How are you?
1: I'm fantastic. Full disclosure, it is absolutely not October 15th. We are recording this super early. This is a Wednesday morning recording. Not a shot has been struck in the world of golf tournaments this week. Although, actually, we had a request... For event of the week nomination for the Carry Cup, which looks like a, a mixed event between you know men, women. Uh, it's I think it's America versus GB and I, I believe. Uh, it's you know, or I'm sorry, not America, the MGA Met- Metro Golf Association. So New York area, even more you know narrow than just USA. Over in uh, Ireland right now, Mega Gane's in it, so that's being played right now. But other than that. No events have started. We're early. We have a great interview with John Now No, the Q School started. That's true. That's true. Whatever. It's Wednesday morning. We're just trying to give you a peek behind the curtain here. The smoke (laughs) and mirrors. We're usually, you know, not trying to pull one over on you. We have a great interview with John Huggins. We wanted to have him on to talk about the European tour schedule, the strategic alliance, what it means for that schedule, what it means for the schedule this time of year. Can it really stand out? Of course, his good friend, Renton Laidlaw, legendary broadcaster, writer, uh, all things golf media, radio as well, uh, passed away this week, passed away the night before we recorded this. So we had him talk a little bit about that, tell some highly amusing stories of his own amateur days playing golf. And also a little bit of the Ryder Cup. What comes next for Europe in terms of captains, players, and all that. So we we appreciate John. We thought it was a nice balance to having Will Bardwell on, sort of the the voice for the American side, uh, or at least an American fall event in the Sanderson. And John obviously has deep and long European tour roots. But uh, let's begin. You know, nothing's happened. We don't need our 18-hole updates. We're going to do a quick update here on the driver's shaft. Phil is going nuts about this, this new regulation going from 48 to 46 inches. He's armed with his Twitter account. You know, 10 years ago, maybe we wouldn't have seen these comments in the public domain. But he's going, stupid is as stupid does, he tweeted. On Tuesday, Mrs. Gump, really though, are the amateurs trying their best to govern the professional game, the stupid ones, or the professionals for letting them? It is ext- This is now a Wednesday tweet. It is extremely disappointing to find out that the PGA Tour adopted the new USGA rule through the media. I don't know of any player who had any say or any kind of representation in this matter. I do know many are wondering if there's a better way. Subtle, sh- not so subtle shot at the PGA Tour, uh, which we addressed in our Wednesday episode about how his you know, response to that Grayson Murray tweet. He's been... Taking runs at the tour publicly on Twitter. This is another one. Uh, He's obviously popped off at the USGA. You have any reaction to this? I I think it's dangerous to put the, uh, the role of regulating into the hands of those that are supposed to be regulated, I would say. You
0: know, yeah, uh, but it is a hey, number of organization. Why don't, why don't we let uh, Jeff Bezos uh make the rules on how, how we want you know the uh business to run, you know, and and why don't we let traders make the rules on SEC guidelines? Like, you know, that that it, goes it well. happens, <laughs> and sometimes you know, a lot of stuff
1: you know, things spiral, and we may be at a spiral not a spiral, but a dangerous moment in the professional game because we have you know let certain interests have too much weight and say i i think feet.
0: I, I mean listen like technology technology gave phil a bunch of majors he didn't win any majors till he got the the solid core golf ball so you know yes. and, and maybe technology is extending his career into the into the 50s i i would say that he probably would have won majors and everything without it but the the record shows that you know he didn't win a major till there was a solid core golf ball so and he's got as I understand, a lifetime, massive deal with Callaway. So they're just uh, you know constituents that have uh, different interests and uh, that don't align with necessarily the the benefit of the game. As we talked about on Wednesday, this was a preemptive move. Um, they are popular now, but the way technology advances, like they they fix everything. Like and when when they finish. Optimizing on one spec, they move to the next spec. How do, could we make a forty-eight inch driver that goes straighter? They'll figure it out, you know. And uh and cutting it here, cutting the head off before it's a huge problem. Before there's you know a hundred players that use a forty-seven inch driver, I think it's a good move. This is just you know, I, I I just one guy throwing his hands up. I saw all these players, you know, were. A lot of them were mad about it, but they all like prefaced it with like, "I don't use a forty-seven inch driver." Um, but I think this is dumb, and you know, no amateur uses a forty-seven inch driver. I've got a newsflash for you: the manufacturers. This you go to Golf Galaxy or or PGA Superstore. You don't buy off the rack a forty-eight inch driver. This is, this is just a newsflash. This literally impacts like maybe point zero 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 one percent of golfers this impact so i don't even know why we're talking about it to be completely honest
1: i well because phil is going nuts i i think like it's an odd thing for him to so vehemently go crazy over it's just
0: well it's it's an underlying thing i think what he's trying to do is drum up more interest for the pgl yeah
1: but it's like, it's just such a minor thing that, like, maybe you use like a little pistol and he's just brought out the bazooka and he's, or the tank and he's just launching these. It just doesn't seem like that big a deal to, to, to really put your foot down on it. But he's taking aim at the USGA. Justin Thomas uh, came out and said it doesn't make, I, I did enjoy Lee Westwood's response. Did you yes. see Westy responding to yeah. Phil? He's just like, hey, man. What difference does a couple inches make? You know, it's just like a, like, double, meaning, so a double
0: meaning tweet. And could be, uh,
1: and Justin Thomas said, you know, he didn't think he didn't think it makes sense. They didn't need to address it, but they should address arm bar or arm lock. Putting is more pressing. So,
0: well, uh, I think this might be just the first of, of some other tweaks. Who knows?
1: Right, right. So that's your update on the shaft length as, of, as of Wednesday. Phil, Phil's at a point in his career. I know he's done a lot in the game, where he should have an outsized influence on the future of the game. Does that make sense? Right? I I just don't.
0: What would be I, interesting I in is just like Phil's commentary versus Tigers. Right. Like I, have, have Tiger's been very outspoken for regulation.
1: Right. Right, it, 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 it's just
0: really a very interesting dichotomy
1: between the two. And Phil's comments, like, what are they? What are the motivations behind them? There's always, you know, dig a little deeper. There may be other motivations. All right, that does it for your Wednesday news update. Anything else you want to talk about here, Andy? You talk about James uh-huh. Harden some more? Okay, we're gonna get to John. Oh, Huggins.
0: I, you know, apologies. You know, we were way off on our uh, eligibility. I'm learning so much that eligibility is not what we thought it was. There's nobody has... If you you go to college, that's when your clock starts ticking for eligibility. Me and you, we don't have any eligibility. Ray Allen doesn't have eligibility. Andrea Um, Godala doesn't have eligibility. LeBron has eligibility. People that went straight from high school that haven't attended college have eligibility. My fault, where there's a huge void which I was thinking about, like hockey players, um, because the, you know the elite hockey players go to juniors and they don't play you know in college and baseball players. So you could see, that's where you could see more J.R. Smiths, I imagine. but then again, there has to be um, you know a lot of former players get into coaching or scouting or something. <laughs> There has to be just special cases like Jr. Smith where coaching really isn't in, in the in the cards for him, sure. or her, her sure. being in representation, or whatever it may be. Jr. Smith school was really the the only option post playing career or okay. retire just pure retirement.
1: You could be an entertainer of some sort. I mean, you know, right? Uh, but in athletics, maybe that was it. All right, let's get to John Huggin. Uh, we really appreciate his time. We think. You'll enjoy this. Uh, stick around for the end for
0: an amazing, stories.
1: amazing story of, of a tough break in his amateur playing days and the subsequent you know night that happened after it. Um, but we thought it was an interesting talk, certainly on rent and laid love, remembrance, and some European tour updates. All right, here's John. All right, we welcome in John Huggin. He is the European correspondent for Golf Digest, among many other things. He's a, a I'd say legendary is the term I will use, legendary golf writer. I, I'm told and have heard he was formerly, a, may still be a great player in his own right. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate the time. It's my pleasure. Uh, first of all, you know, we, we had you on here generally talk about European Tour strategic alliances, the schedule coming up. But uh, some news this week, Renton Laidlaw passed away. Uh, you were uh, close friends with him. Uh, he's a fellow Scott. And I believe he gave his last interview to you in a podcast uh, a few months ago in August. Uh, can you tell us, first of all, tell us where we can find that podcast and then you know, tell us a little bit about uh, Renton, your friendship and what he was like. I-, I know a lot of our audience is probably younger mostly American, maybe grew up with him uh, as sort of the, the soundtrack on the weekends, but tell us a little bit about Renton and where we can find that that podcast.
2: Um, well, the podcast was, it's called The Thing About Golf. It's a Golf Australia magazine production. Um, I think uh, I think you just go to the yeah. app store and you can find it. Um, that's the easy way. Um, Renton, uh, yeah, it's been a very sad day for not only myself, but many people, um, just about, I mean, Renton was world famous you can I think it's easy to say that you can't say that about many people but Renton was known all over the world and there'll be many sad um, sad expressions uh, over the globe today I think um he was universally liked I mean I know when people pass away that the you know they tend to the eulogies tend to focus on the, all the positives but there was nothing negative um about Renton not a thing he was the nicest, kindest man I think I've ever met. Um, I'll miss him. I mean, he and I had lunch maybe every ten days or so. He lived quite near me. Um, I'll miss that aspect of it. He liked to, even in retirement, he liked to hear all the gossip and the chat and what was going on. Um, but yeah, uh, he, he always had that. Um, he never, he never gave away much, but he always had that little smile on his face when you told him something that uh, maybe he wasn't going to make it into print. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what do you uh, do? You have a favorite story from your time together? One that pops to mind that uh, that you could share.
2: Well, he he told this story on the on the podcast, um, and this was uh, Nick Faldo won the English Amateur Championship at Royal Lytham in 1975, and Renton was there um, certainly early in the week to, to cover it for radio, but he had to get back to Glasgow for some other appointment uh, on the day of the I think the semi final and was uh, then going to get somebody at Lytham to tell him what happened so that he could then do his report from Glasgow. So he, he happened to be in the um, Glasgow Central Railway Station while he was doing this report. So he gets into the little phone booth and starts off with, you know, Nick Faldo today at Lytham, blah, blah, blah. And in the background, there was uh, the train for, on Platform 7, it's, and this went out <laughs> on the radio. <laughs> so he had to immediately slam the phone down and say, "Oh my goodness, that was a crossed line, crossed line." So yeah, but
1: he was full of escapades <laughs> like that. You know, fantastic, fantastic. Um, yeah. uh, when, so you had lunch with them every every ten days or so. Is that, is yeah. that accurate? In the Saint, he lived just north of Saint Andrews. I, I saw. Yeah, he lived at
2: Dramoig, which was maybe okay. five or six miles outside Saint Andrews. Yeah. So. Did
0: okay. you guys have a lunch was there- spot? Was it like one spot that you went to every time, or did you mix it up?
2: Uh, no, it was... Well, we did mix it up very slightly, but the nine times out of ten we were at the Dramoic Hotel, which was about two minutes from his house. Um, his sister, Jennifer, who he lived with, she often joined us, but um, uh, yeah, there was a table in the corner where we always sat. Um, It'll uh, be a painful experience the next time I go there, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, did he have, uh, like, a favourite uh, tournament, a favourite event, favourite major that you you both would kind of be out there on the road together that you know is near and dear to his heart? Well, he's, well, they, well, two, really. The
2: Open, obviously, um, and yep. the Masters. He had a long relationship with the Masters. He was the first um, non-American journalist um, to attend 40 Masters. I think he attended 42 in total. And wow. uh, he's, a, he's one of those guys with a, his own parking space at Augusta. Sure. Um, and his name and face and pictures up on the wall in the media center i think i'm i'm not sure if he's still the only european but he was certainly the first
1: okay great great well thank you for uh, those comments we're sorry for the loss of your friend uh but but we appreciate you speaking to the, to him and his legacy for sure um transitioning here you know one thing we wanted to talk about is it's it's ever present top of mind here certainly this time of year is the european tour schedule first of all is it pronounced schedule or schedule? We have this debate, this oh. linguistic debate. Here. We hear Justin Rose and others. I don't know if that's an English term, or English pronunciation. Is it, do you pronounce it schedule or schedule? Or are the Americans say, have
2: it wrong? I would say schedule, but I mean I've had it done both ways. So
1: okay, all right. Um, what do you make? I, I think the schedule.
2: A lot of it is, it is now viewed
1: through the lens of this strategic alliance and what sort of implications that may have. We've heard the, you know, Genesis Scottish Open, there may be FedEx Cup points, there's opposite field events on the, on the American side that will be Race to Dubai, a European Tour co-sanctioned events. Um, what is your view of the strategic alliance generally? I, I, I know that the European Tour may have been in a position where they needed it, but, but what is your view of the strategic alliance?
2: Uh, well well you maybe won't be too
1: surprised to hear that
2: I take a slightly cynical view of it um <laughs> I'd see it as only the the, the start of uh, the downward spiral of, uh, if you'd call it that um it's basically going to be it, it'll evolve into a takeover i would imagine um the p g a tour is too big and too powerful and too rich um for anything else to happen i mean and the european tour if you look at their schedule um at the moment i mean they're playing for <laughs> Like a million and a half euros, or a million euros, most weeks. Um, it's it's pretty low, a lot lower than it used to be before the pandemic came along. And and the, it's to an enormous credit that they've managed to keep going to the extent that they have. But it's definitely been a diminished product. Um, hence the you know the need for the strategic alliance. Um, the future is is certainly for the rank and file players on the European tour. I mean, I, I know a lot of them are are kind of worried about. What's to become of them? I mean, the the PGA Tour, as you just alluded to, are already cherry picking the the best events on the European Tour. I mean, the, there's always been you know, like three or four times of the year where the European Tour was was the place to be. You know, the Middle East in January, uh, the months between the, the U.S. Open and the Open, and then the time after the um, the end of the FedEx Cup. So there's always been a you know like two or three opportunities for the European Tour to shine, but and but the, for the rank and file guys, I think they're already worried that the uh, you know if the cherry picking continues, the bigger events on the European Tour, if it remains that way, are going to become dominated by more and more American players. You know they're going to get half the field, and then it'll be two thirds of the field. And where do the rank and file guys go after that? They'll, they'll be you know, I, th- I see the European Tour eventually evolving into maybe a feeder tour for whatever the PGA Tour becomes, and it might even be a kind of world tour in inverted commas.
0: Yeah, you know, it's uh, your your cynicism. I think is warranted given what has happened with the PGA Tour and different historic events that have somewhat lost their history um, and become different events, but still celebrate the history, you know, with uh, graphics and such. Um, and, and I think also, you you know, as you alluded to, the rank and file players, like the the opposite field events seem to be another opportunity they're pouncing on, getting, you know, some guys come over for the, from the European tour for things like the Barbasol and the, you know, mm. these smaller events.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean I, I'm not sure that too many of the, the Riken and file, if I keep calling them that, um, <laughs> yeah. are, are, are too enamoured of that prospect. You know, they'd rather play in the BMW at Wentworth and, and something else and not have to travel as much. And, or instead of that, they're going to fly to America and play for half as much money. I mean, that, that's not the, the best deal on the, uh, in the, on the planet for those guys. But, you know, inevitably, you come back to the, the phrase that you always hear in professional golf is play better. If you play better, you'll be, in the, you'll be in the big events, you know. So, I mean, I take the view that competitive sports shouldn't be a democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, far from it. Um, although it is always amusing to me, I'm sure to you guys, that uh, these raging right wingers uh, at the top end of professional golf turn into trade unionists <laughs> at the drop of a hat when it suits them. You know? <laughs>
1: We just uh we just recorded uh, <laughs> on this for Wednesday about the $50,000 stipend you get for showing up to 15 yeah. no, months.
2: There point. you go. This perfect example. Perfect
0: example. <laughs> uh I John just uh kind of going back, obviously, you know the the Fabus 5 was a big period for the European Tour golf with Seve and Faldo. When I w- I grew up watching the era of, you know, Colin Montgomery, Lee Westwood, Sergio Garcia, where the top-end talent on the European tour was at par almost level to that of the PGA tour. Is there a moment where that the shift really started to happen, where uh, the PGA tour started to attract, um, you know, the best players uh, from the European tour and we had less and less European tour players that were great players and more split time. Is there, is there a moment that stands out in your mind?
2: Yeah, well, maybe not a moment, but it's certainly a period where the the a big part of this, I think, is that more and more uh, the college system in America has become accessible to the to the better players from not just from the UK but from the continent as well, and more and more of them they go to America, they go to college in America, um, and they stay. You know, they just they hardly ever come back. I mean, you get guys like Luke Donald, and you know. Paul Casey is a perfect example, who's somebody who's, you know, he hardly ever plays on the European tour, but he, you know, he's a great Ryder cup player and all the rest of it. But, uh, you know, he went to America, went to Arizona state. He went to, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. And yes. and he just stayed, he, he lives in America and he's made his life there and, and which is fine, but uh, it doesn't, that doesn't help the European tour. So there's been a kind of brain drain, if you like, of talent, which started even before these guys turned professional. That's, that to me is a big part of it. I don't think it's the sole factor but um, yeah uh, yeah I mean uh, to pinpoint an absolute, an absolute you know moment in time would be difficult but the, probably in a five to ten year period that increased hugely. Um, America became more and more accessible as I said for these guys and they get over there and they get used to the lifestyle and they like the American way of life and, and good luck to them and, and they stay.
0: Yeah. Most recently, like Victor Hovland would be a perfect example of that.
2: It, exactly. That's exactly the kind of guy I'm talking about. Yeah.
0: And as opposed to they would become they'd be like your Lee Westwood, uh, Sergio turning pro in their early, you know, early 20s, late teens. And, and, you know, instead, they're playing college golf instead of playing on the European tour.
2: Well, that's right. <clears throat> I mean, it used to be that the um, you that's a good, <clears throat> good uh, example, the. The guys uh, Colin Montgomery being the exam- uh, perfect he the exception really because he didn 't turn pro till he was twenty four but he went to college in the states as well um, but Monty, for whatever reason, never really took to the American way of life i mean i think it's uh that 's basically the choice that it comes down to when, in the end i mean you either like living in America or you don 't if you 're from somewhere else uh, but most most people seem to do especially when the money gets uh, gets bandied about in front of them.
0: It's it's interesting, like you know, one of the things I think about is you know Thomas Peters. He I went to the University of Illinois. Thomas Peters went there, so I've obviously been a been a fan of his. But he he talked, you know, he was very outspoken about how much he disliked the American way of life. And mm-hmm. you know, if it, after that 2016 Ryder Cup, you expected Thomas Peters to be a world beater, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a top 15 player, and that could have been, you know, one of those types of players that galvanized and. And led to the European Tour surging. Not to not to put a, the weight of the world on on Thomas Peter's back, but that's also it seems to be you know where a player like that the difference between him being a top sixty player and a top twenty player would make a huge difference for the European Tour week in week out.
2: Well, but yeah, and if I'm going to put my cynical hat back on again, I mean, if if Thomas Peters had kicked on in the way that you just described, he'd be playing on the PGA Tour full time. You know whether he liked the sure. American way of life or not, he he, you can get back and forth often enough, I'm sure. And he'd be, you go where the money is. I mean, there, these guys are professionals. There's the old saying is that the clues in the title, and uh, you know, I I just they'd be mad to play in the European tour full time if if they were good enough to play in America. I mean, that that's so you go, go where
1: the money is. It's a good so point. There, during the break, uh, the the not the pandemic break last year, we got really deep into researching. Obviously, we, we caught the tail ends of the famous five careers. We got really deep into researching Faldo, Sevi, Lyle, mm-hmm. uh, Woozy, uh, the whole group, and uh, we were just so taken and enamored with it. It sounded like such a. I mean, we were young. We we had some familiarity. Just such a like glorious era. And I'm wondering, like, what we just talked about sports or, or democracy, but what are we losing if if this does with the European tour, if it is a total takeover, I think we're all of a like mind that, that golf world golf as a whole would be something less or something more monotonous, but what are we losing really with, with the European tour being sort of consumed by the PGA tour?
2: Well, in many ways, I mean, I, I I don't know how you guys feel, but watching the the PGA tour week to week, it's a, it's a, it can at times a pretty tired product. Um, there's a real sameness to it every week for yeah. me and uh, a lot of the times I, I barely watch I mean I cannot pay attention to see who's winning and, and but the golf courses are man there's not too many of them that are that interesting and that at least the European tour always brought variety and I think that was a lot of why the the way the game was played certainly before the, the equipment uh, has gone the way it has there was a lot more of um, a lot more people played And not like Seve, but they tried to play like Seve. I mean, there was a lot of shot shaping. There was a lot of, you know, the persimmon woods and plow balls and all that stuff. There there was a lot more shot making. A lot more people played like Seve and Lee Trevino. And, you know, I bang on about this a lot, but we're kind of veering off slightly. But, uh, I mean, how can can the game today be better at the top end if nobody plays like Seve or Lee Trevino? I mean, how can it possibly be better or or more interesting, certainly? Um, I mean, it's it's yep. become one dimensional. Uh, the game at the top end has become more one dimensional, and as has, I'm afraid, the PGA Tour. I mean, what succeeds on the PGA Tour is the you know hit it as far as you can and wedge it on the green. Um, I'm not sure that long term is a great <laughs> you know uh, policy for the PGA Tour to follow. I've, I've often I'm intrigued by the fact that they, they seem to think that that's the way forward. Uh, long short term, it might be, but long term, I have my doubts, and I do think that this strategic alliance um, thing is an opportunity for the PGA Tour to introduce more variety into the schedule schedule um, going forward. I mean, the the more the more cherry picking they do is good for the top end of the game. I think. I mean, or in terms of uh, what tour we're going to be watching ten years from now. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think you make a great point because with with the kind of homogeneity of setup, the setups that they create, and you know they yeah. they Rory said it earlier this year. You know, you know what to expect week in week out on the PGA Tour. You don't really need to prep, but that all that setup is done in in favors that power hitter, and that's what we see at the top yeah. of the game. Whereas with with variety of courses, weather setup um, that. Is what breeds, you know, different types of players coming to the forefront. You know, just like we see a couple weeks a year with Harbortown. That's where a lot of different yeah. players contend.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's there's nothing more depressing. I mean, I can still picture this. I have no idea which tournament it was, but it was maybe three or four years ago. The Tiger missed the green on a on a par three, uh, say two hundred yards, whatever it was. Put his club back in his bag and took out his sandwich on the tee. Because he knew that was the club that he was going to need for his second shot. I mean, that that to me that is depressing. I mean, how how can you possibly be that predictable? Golf is never meant to be that predictable. It's it's lost its its charm a lot. I think at the because of the as you just said the the way the courses are set up. There's there's too much sameness. Um, let's you know let's have big wide fairways some weeks and let's go. And I mean I'm not a big fan of. U.S. Open type setups, but yeah, let's have that now and again. I mean, let's 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 vary it. Let's make it different.
1: Mm-hmm. You talked about the sameness. Is there um, is there anyone that approximates? N- no one. No one is Seve. No one is Trevino. But is there anyone maybe that American audience isn't familiar with, either on the European tour or, or the PGA tour, that that approximates some sort of unique style that you like? Obviously, they may not be succeeding at the high, end, the top end of the game, given the preference, you know sort of the preference for power but is there someone that kind of you fancy like that 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 does have an approximation uh, approximate some different game a different style that that we should watch for is it dick bland no, <laughs> no it's not definitely not
2: but <laughs> yeah i i don't think we know who those people are because um yeah. if if they try and play like that it's they're not going to make it because that's not what right. succeeds it, it just, they don't do that because it doesn't make any sense to do that anymore. And the game is poorer for that, to my mind. I mean, I know I'm starting to sound like an old fuddy-duddy, but um, I miss the, you know, the. Bubba Watson was a complete freak um, in that sense. I mean, he was the only one that, that bent the ball, if you like, or bent his shots. I mean, can you imagine the the shots that he would have hit <laughs> with uh, Persimmon Woods and Bellata balls? I mean, my goodness, it, the 20-yard you know, shaping that he does now would be 40 yards or 50 yards. He probably, actually, he probably would, he'd be struggling to get on the tour playing with the old equipment if he if he swung the way he does now. But, uh, that's what I miss. Uh, and I think uh, it's just, you know, there's too much sameness. I mean, I keep coming back to that.
1: Mm-hmm. So, you talked about these, these moments in the European tour schedule where they, they could shine, shine out uh, the Middle East and certainly this time of year. I, I know you were at the Dunhill. I think you're at Wentworth as well. What yeah. would be your sort of ideal, uh, Q4 is, is kind of a fancy, it's a minimum, you know, it minimizes what the, what this time of year means, but... Uh, this sort of September through the end of the year, what would be your ideal and what do you think might happen in the new sort of strategic alliance era? What What would be your ideal schedule to, to make the European tour stand out?
2: Well, I think, you know, survival is the European tour. is still the European tour's priority right now. Uh, yeah. Just maintaining some kind of presence. I mean, even if it is for a million euros uh, total purse, Um. But I'd, I'd like to, I mean, the ideal scenario for me is, is building the, the European Tour around the, the National Open titles. Um, I mean, is there anything yeah. that sounds better than the Scottish Open or the Irish Open or the French Open or the Spanish Open? Far more than, you know, some commercial, I don't know, I'm not right. going to pick on any sponsors, but you know what I mean? Uh, I mean, I still call it the Dinosaur yep. the Dinosaur. Um I don't know what it's called now I forget what they're going to call it. Um I much prefer that tournament when it was named after one of Burt Reynolds' old girlfriends. So.
0: Yeah, <laughs> John. John, the issue though is the the PGA Tour and what they've done with the uh, with the Canadian Open. How that's a perfect example of the sameness and how they've taken an event and kind of massacred it.
2: Well, I, I was all over Keith Pelly um, two or three years ago um, about the Canadian Open. I said to him, I said, "Man, you guys, you should grab the Canadian Open." And put, get it on the European tour and play it there the week before the US Open every year. Can you imagine the field that you would get? I mean, and he, he he kind of hummed and hawed. He didn't say yes or no. And I'm not sure how if he pursued it at all. But to me, that was a great idea. You know, just get that on the European tour and play it the week before the US Open. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: th- so there's the that whole... A whole national open schedule and rotation that you could carry all the way through Australia that would just be so compelling and and uh, and I mean that's the thing people care about playing for their like you get the best players from all the countries when it comes to the national open you know save for Jason Day in in Australia yeah
2: yeah <laughs> I mean look at last week the the Spanish Open was in Madrid and John Ram was there. You know, the number one player in the world, he was only one in the top 50 playing, but he played, you know, presumably this is his time of year for going home and visiting family and all the rest of it. But the fact is he did the right thing and he was there. He played in his National Open and there's an emotional, you know, pool for these guys. Even, you know, if the money isn't there, they'll, they'll come back and play in their National Open far more readily than they will anything else.
1: So in the last month or so we've had the, you know, since September, we've had the Italian open, the Dutch open, the Spanish open, Uh, you know, Mm. the Dunhill is obviously Dunhill and Wentworth. That's, those are some, you know, that's the national open road, maybe not the premier ones. You have the Scottish in the middle of the summer, but what, what can we do? What, how can those be amplified? What did you foresee the tour pumping money into this sort of time of year? The the PGA tour, I should say, pumping money into some of these events, providing FedEx cups, or is that a negative because it does sort of whittle out the rank and file that you mentioned?
2: Well, it, it, there's pluses and minuses, as you just said. I mean, uh, plus it might just be pie in the sky, this whole discussion. I mean, uh, yeah. do, uh, can, can do any of us really see the PGA tour embracing that kind of thing? Uh,
0: depends oh, on, depends on what kind of global spot partners they can drum up.
2: Yeah. Well, they, they'll, again, they'll go where the money is. Um, and maybe there's uh, you know, in all of these countries there's there's one big company that'll come along and say, right, we'll do we'll do the one big event. The the National Open will be the one big deal. And you know, maybe that's how it works. But uh, you know, again, <laughs> I have my doubts really, so to be honest.
1: Uh all right, let's let's transition real quick to the Ryder Cup. It's it's not the most recent news, but it was certainly, you know, a few <coughs> weeks ago. There seems oh, to be the grand... Well,
2: who won? I, I, I must have missed that one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, there, 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 there are these grand pronouncements coming out of this, that this is a new era, European roster looks uh, past due, and there's not, there, there's not a lot of talent on the horizon to replenish the ranks. I tend to sort of disagree with, with a lot of these quick call, early calls, two years is a lot of time. I mean, do you lead into that? I, I imagine you disagree with... Well, yeah, uh, I mean, do you feel like f- this is a turning of the changing the guard?
2: Well, it might be. I mean, uh, the first thing I need to say, I, I don't really care who wins the Ryder Cup. I just want it to be close. And and sure. that's one thing that we're losing right, right now. The, the home team seem to be dominating far too much. Um, there needs to be you know, more 14.5, halves than 19.9s. Um but yeah, I'm with you. I think it's way too soon to 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 predict what's going to happen. I mean, you know, back at Hazeltine, when America won quite comfortably, everybody thought, oh, they've, they've cracked the code. This is going to be the future. And then they got their asses handed to them the next time around in France. So you never know. But uh, the one thing I would say is that the the, the up and comers in Europe, you know, the Bob McIntyre and the Hoyer twins and those sort of guys, they're they're going to have to improve um a fair bit in the next two years they they're highly promising but they're not they're a, a level maybe just more just a little bit more than a level below what you would want to to be competitive in the Ryder Cup especially when you look at the teams that America are probably going to come up with in the next 10 years it's not impossible but um to be very honest, though, I mean, let's let's face it. I mean, America should hardly ever lose the Ryder Cup. I mean, they should be absolutely ashamed of themselves what's happened over the last 20 years.
1: It's nonsense. Sure. Sure. Are there any other names outside of McIntyre, the Hoggard twins? I, uh, they seem to be bandied about quite often that, that you foresee sort of rising into the, the roster as a, turning it over, as it turns over from the, the glory years of Westwood, Sergio, others.
2: Yeah, well, they're the ones that stand out. Um,
1: I'd be hard okay. pushed to come up with too
2: many others, to be honest, that are even as right. good as they are right this minute. But uh, two years, as you said, is a long time. Uh, somebody that we've barely heard of a year from now will be winning tournaments in the on the European Tour, especially right. if we keep going the way we're going. I mean, if you look at the, the list of winners on the European Tour since uh, they came back from the first lockdown, um man there's some weird and wonderful names on that list um and you have to think that at least some of them wouldn't have won a tournament in normal times if you can put it that
0: way well you know i think there's also like something to be said about the you know with golf the non linear improvement where some guys are better at age 26 28 than they are at 22 yeah. and in the us seems to have a lot of these young players like but Sam Burns is a perfect example on the U.S. side of a guy that might end up being better than some of these guys we think are world beaters right now, and he's proving yeah. it now. But on the Euro side, you've got guys like like a, a name that comes to mind is Sam Horsfield, who was like with he's peers with these guys and was you know arguably a better co- college player than some of the big-name Americans that, that thrived on the Ryder Cup team this year. And in two yeah. years, he might end up being one of the 10 best players in the world. You don't know. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that to me is the best part of this.
2: It's incredibly unpredictable. I mean, we're, we're pontificating here and you said, Benny said right at the beginning there, two years is an awful long time in golf. Uh, I mean, you you can come and go. And I mean, some of those guys that played so well at whistling Straits for America might be playing rubbish two years from now, you know, half the team might be off form, you know, who knows? I mean, absolutely anything is possible, but the, You know, If you were a betting man, um, you would bet on America winning the next one, but uh, I wouldn't bet a lot of money on it.
1: I think one of the great dramas on the European side may be who gets a captain? Who gets to be a captain? Who's left out given the sort of plethora of options and and sort of so many of the legends that have been made over the last 25 years? Uh, I I just, I, I feel like that could be a, a moment of tension coming down the pike uh, uh, for the on the European side. And dramatic. Well, I think it already
2: is, in a way. I did a, a piece um, well, that Golf Digest were interested in, in running it. But um, on the bias, there's a bias, definitely been a bias um, towards Great Britain and Ireland um, since the continent of Europe got involved in 1979. I think we've had 21 Ryder Cups in that time, and 17 of the captains have come from Great Britain and Ireland only four from the continent. Um, that's, and as you say, there's a whole stream of people coming on board. I mean, the, the word is that Lee Westwood's going to get it next time and then maybe Poulter after that. And, you know, both Englishmen. So that's, it's going to be 23-4 before you know it. Uh, but you get guys like um, Robert Carlson, who the word is that he was by far the most impressive assistant captain in France. And again, the Whistling Straits. But Robert Carlson's not going to get the job you know, he's, he's been European number one and he's played in Ryder Cups, but he's not high profile enough or whatever perception they have of him, he's not going to get it. But then you've got Martin Keimer, Henrik Stenson, Sergio Garcia is going to be coming along in four or five years. These guys are all legitimate uh, captains. Uh, but, and, and as you say, the bottom line is that um, a lot of high profile names are going to miss out on that job.
1: McDowell, Donald. There's just yeah, there's yeah, so many. Exactly, two more. Exactly, yeah. So, uh, lastly, Eddie, do you have anything? It looked like you were.
0: Well, yeah, I was. I, it's just a, I think an interesting aspect of the Ryder Cup captaincy it mirrors that of coaching in a lot of sports, where the the great Ryder Cup players aren't always the great Ryder Cup captains, and yeah. and and we see this with even analysts on tv i i lament <laughs> about this on uh, with our american uh one of our american analysts that uh you know he's got a major but that's that's his qualifications and it almost bur- it, it releases the burden of do- putting the work in where you know obviously uh, you know and i'm interested in your take but the most celebrated european captain probably had the lightest playing resume in the most in the last 20 years
2: you mean 12 talk- Paul McGinley. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he—he. He, I thought he was going to change the way it was done. It, well, he did in many ways, but in terms, in terms of how the captain was chosen, he he was chosen, as you said, not because he was a major winner and a, a great player. He was a very good player, but he wasn't a great player. But he was chosen because he was the best man for the job. Um, I'm not sure that's uh, – I mean, Lee Westwood and, and Ian Poulter bring a lot of credentials to the – the role, if they do get it, but I'm not sure that uh, they're better qualified than Robert Carlson or Martin Keimer. Or you know, Martin Keimer's a really intelligent guy. I mean, he's seen all sides of the Ryder Cup now, and he would be a great captain, I think. But he might, I, I, if the, you're betting on it right now, he might not get the job. He might you not know, even be quoted. So I don't know. It's uh, I mean, Nick Faldo was. The <laughs> It was a complete disaster as, as the Ryder Cup captain. I mean, he—he uh, he only got the job, I think, because it was too hard to explain why he wouldn't get it or didn't get it. Um, <laughs>
1: right.
2: Because the, none of the players wanted him. I know that, but the, to it, to the players' credit, there's none of them have actually thrown him under the bus publicly since then, and they they could have done easily, I think.
1: Yeah. Yep. Uh, la- last one. Well, this is uh, comes from a friend of the program, maybe a friend of yours, or maybe an enemy of yours. That that said, I had needed to ask you about this. Uh-huh. Um, the night after you missed qualifying for the nineteen eighty five Open by a single right. shot, yes. I was told to ask you about that night. Yeah, um, yeah. I've told you. If a few you a
2: comment, or you no, no, no. I'm, I'm <laughs> happy to tell you. It's it's already out there in the public domain. Um, it was 1985, okay. I was playing in the final qualifying at Prince's, which was right next door to Royal St George's where the Open was going to be. Um, I got to the last hole in the 36-hole qualifying at that point, the final qualifying. So I get to the last hole and I figure I need a par four to at least get in a playoff to have a chance mm-hmm. to get in the Open. Um, I hit a good drive up the middle, nice second shot right down the throat of the green, Unfortunately, the ball landed on the metal sprinkler head on the edge of the green and <laughs> shot way up in the air and into the cr- into the crap behind the green. Uh, three to three to get down, missed by a shot. Um, I started drinking fairly soon after that. Um, <laughs> and woke up the next morning on the floor um, of the living room of the house where I was staying, having no memory of ever getting back there. And I was covered in dirt and muck, and you know, I was in terrible state. And the woman, the, the landlady, came through, and she says, oh, yes, she says, you were last seen, she said, um, in the field across the road from the house, howling at the moon sometime <laughs> after midnight. And I have no memory of that to this day, so I've only got her word for it. But, yeah, that was, that was as near as
1: I ever got to playing in the open. <laughs> the great story. I, I was told yeah. that might be the year you also got to the final of the Scottish amateur. Was that the same uh, year, 85?
2: No, that was uh, 83. I got the final, yeah. 85, okay. I, I actually, if it's, it's slightly less in, or more impressive, I got the quarterfinal of the British amateur in 85. Oh,
1: huh? so, yeah. fantastic. All right. Well, that's a great I th- story. I, I thought you were going to
2: ask me about the Dick, the Dick Sidoroff story. That was the legend at Golf Digest. What's, What's that? that? Story? You, you yeah. can tell that. Yeah. I mean, was oh. an open mic, if you like. <laughs> well, I uh, I played uh, at the 1981 British Amateur at St Andrews. I played against. I was drawn to play against Dick Sidorov in the first round. It was a total match play back then. He'd uh, he'd already won the the championship twice. In fact, he'd won. I think he won the the previous time at St Andrews. So he was he was a big star, as you can imagine. And I was just this. Snorty knows, twenty-year-old kid from Scotland, playing against him, um, and I, we shook hands on the first tee, and, and he didn't say anything to me, not a word. Just looked at me. Um, <laughs> no, that was fine. So the game goes on, and he, he didn't—he didn't say one word to me all the way around, which was the bad, it was the worst thing he could have done with me because all he did was piss me off, and uh, of sure. course, I pulled every putt I looked at, chipped, in, did all the things that you do in eighteen-hole match play to beat someone. Somebody who's a far better player than you are, and I, I shook hands with him on the the sixteenth green, and I, all I said to him was, "Thanks for the game, Dick. Enjoy your flight." <laughs> <laughs> and I made I made the mistake of telling people at Golf Digest that, and the, to that, you know, to this day, I still get that that quote coming back at me, especially as Dick's wife Topsy worked at Golf Digest when I was there. <laughs> so oh, no, it was a, there was a little bit of an atmosphere, yeah.
1: Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, All right. Well, thank you, John. Appreciate your time so much. Your, Your expertise, commentary, both on European tour, the history of game. We really appreciate your time. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thanks.
0: Yeah. Thanks, John.